Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, it's the middle of the week, or that already lots of uh, things are happening here in Israel, and it's certainly the beginning of a the summer Knesset session, which is going to be an extremely challenging one for this government, and particularly for uh, Prime Minister. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. First of all, let's talk about the main issue of the week, which was the escalation uh, in the south, uh, in Gaza and in the uh, what's called the Gaza envelope, including the towns of Sterot, uh, where on Tuesday, uh, an Islamic Jihad, a prominent Islamic Jihad member who was on a hunger strike for almost three months, uh, was found dead in his cell um, and uh, the Palestinian terrorist organizations had already threatened a response if that were to happen, and they were true to their word on Tuesday. Uh, moving on to Wednesday morning, there were over 100 rockets fired from Gaza into Israel. Thankfully, the majority either landed in open areas or they were fired down by Iron Dome. There were a few that managed to get through, and there's a few foreign workers who are injured as a result. Um, but what uh, is most telling is really the anger um, that is felt across the country, but most uh, chiefly in, in the South. There's a lot of people who basically said, uh, who reported on the news and have uh, written about it and have spoken about it, how they believe that this government, the one that they've been waiting for, uh, what's called in Israel, you know, a complete right wing, Yamin Male Male. Uh, it was not doing its job, was not responsive, uh, did not provide the deterrence necessary. And it seemed to them and many other Israelis that it was Hamas that decided how this conflict would start. Hamas decided when it would end and Hamas decided how, uh, how strong the response would be. Um, according to reports, uh, there was a ceasefire agreed at four o'clock in the morning, not to say as usually happens that Hamas uh, and Islamic Jihad, because apparently they had a joint command with this rocket fire, uh, f uh, shot even after that. Uh, but Israel's response was, you know, considered by many in Israel to be relatively minimal, minimalistic. Uh, you know, the targets were not uh, major. No uh, Palestinian leadership was really targeted. And the interesting thing that's come out of this is there has been quite a widespread call uh, within Israel to, uh, to uh, take up a strategy or a tactic that hasn't been seen for many years in Israel, that's targeted assassinations of senior terrorist group members. If we remember a number of years ago, uh, Hamas leaders, uh, very prominent leaders, uh, were targeted uh, for assassination, I believe it was under the Sharon government, if I remember correctly. So we're talking about almost two decades since that policy has been enacted. 
and a lot of Israelis are saying that that should be the policy of this government. But the fact remains that a lot of people are disappointed. The people of Sterot, or at least some, uh, have demonstrated tonight. They've blocked the roads. That seems to be the way to express your disappointment and displeasure these days in Israel. Uh, they, they're blocking the roads in and out of Sterot. And certainly a lot of people who voted for this government, who believed, uh, who believe in this government and believe that it would be right-wing, hawkish, etc., are very disappointed uh, tonight about the government's response. If there are no more rocket fire, uh, that disappointment will dissipate to a certain extent. Um, but as we've seen, it doesn't take much for Hamas or Islamic Jihad to find an excuse to fire rockets in Israel. They, there is a feeling that they do see weakness in Israel, perhaps because of the divisions um, amongst Israelis over the um, judicial reform. Uh, they've seen the demonstrations, they've seen uh, the discourse in Israel, and they do see weakness. Um, this, the response by Israel certainly won't change that. Um, and there is a worry, especially after what we've seen uh, over the last month of many of Israel's enemies coming together, cooperating, coordinating in this what's called a united front led by Iran, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, towards the end, um, is seeing weakness in Israel. And there is a feeling that the response needed from the Israeli government and the IDF was something much stronger to show that Israel remains united, Israel will uh, react and uh, punish or, or act with great force against those uh, who shoot against it, the media, which definitely, the mainstream media, I should say, in Israel, which is not the biggest fan of this government, to, to put it mildly, uh, took great pleasure in playing recordings of many people who are now hold senior positions in this government, who criticized the previous government uh, for what they claimed was not a forceful enough response to rockets. Um, and in the last government, there was this idea that every rocket will be met by response. And the sort of the, the criticisms are that, you know, they don't even go that far at this point. So that will certainly worry, um, and it is worrying, uh, the Likud and uh, Netanyahu, because many of these people are disappointed, provide the base of support for the party, which is already reeling. According to polls, it's now the second most popular party. It's gone from uh, mid-30s now, and it's down to, uh, according to polls, 23, and Benny Gantz's party has surpassed it. Again, this is just according to polls, um, uh, which is now uh, around 30 uh, seats. And certainly, uh, this is mainly because of the result of uh, judicial reform, but uh, the response uh, to Hamas and Islamic Jihad's rocket fire certainly won't help those uh, polls. As I said, um, this week was the opening of the summer Knesset session. Uh, this government has until May 30th, I believe, to pass the budget, or if uh, they don't manage to do that according to law, uh, it will dissolve automatically and will go to elections. Obviously, there's been a lot of work already on the, the budget, um, <clears throat> but the budget itself is certainly going to be uh, used as a political tool for many uh, parties in the government to see what they can get out of the government, because obviously, if they threaten not to pass, um, uh, the budget or not turn up to certain votes and the budget does not pass, uh, then as I said, the government will dissolve. Um, what is uh, stark is the fact that we've already seen this week uh, threats from uh, different angles within the party. On the one hand, you have Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, who himself 
as the most hawkish, the most right-wing element of this government, certainly his people are most disappointed by the government's response, and he's felt it himself. This has led to him threatening, uh, well, first of all, he, th he threatened and he actually fulfilled it by not turning up to any votes. He, he, he basically called on his party to stay away from the Knesset today and not uh, take part in any government votes. Um, but also uh, there's been uh, sort of threats to even leave the government. Netanyahu's Likud put out a statement, and again, these are all very carefully coordinated, that if he doesn't like the government, uh, then he knows where the door is. Uh, Itmar Ben-Gavir himself responded to that. If Netanyahu doesn't like uh, the role that I'm playing, he can fire me, which clearly means that anyone can leave at any point, and Netanyahu can fire um, uh, Itmar Ben-Gavir, or at least, uh, you know, uh, push the party out, although he doesn't really have any other options, which basically speaks to the fact that these are just threats. But what it also does speak to is that there's no love lost, and both realize that they're in an awkward situation, um, especially when it comes to security. It's one thing on the judicial reform, but when you have a, a government which sat in the opposition last year and was taking extremely hawkish positions, and they received the, over, not the overwhelming, but they received uh, support of the people. They have a pretty comfortable coalition as coalitions go for the last few years uh, of 64 seats, um, that their response would be in line with what they promised the people. That is where the anger is. Uh, but another challenge for the government and potentially could be problematic um, is from the ultra-Orthodox parties who were promised according to their coalition agreements, and they've made that quite clear this week, that um, their law of enlistment, uh, or non-enlistment, I should say, should pass before uh, the budget passes. Now, what, what is this law? Basically, as, as those familiar with the Israeli political or uh, social scene would know, on the whole, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews in Israel do not serve in the army, do not do national service. Uh, at the moment, uh, once the, if, they, if they sit in yeshiva, and they, uh, by the age of 26, they can basically get a full deferment. The ultra-Orthodox want to lower that or make it basically given uh, a legal deferment. In other words, uh, passing a law which would uh, allow ultra-Orthodox not to serve in the army by law. Such laws in the past have been struck down by the Supreme Court uh, time and time again, and that's one of the reasons, one of the central reasons why the ultra-Orthodox are one of the uh, let's say, most forceful um, and supportive parties within the government for uh, the override law, which would override uh, government decisions. Uh, we've already seen that Shas, which is certainly the more moderate of the two parties, or should say three parties, uh, but the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party Shas has already said that they understand that they will not pass such a law before the budget, um, and they've come down and said, you know, we'll, we'll pass it afterwards. On the other side, you have the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, which is made up of the Hasidic and non-Hasidic elements. The, the Hasidic elements are actually taking quite a hard line uh, position at this point, which is that if the law is not passed, we, the ultra-Orthodox party, will not pass the budget. Now, that's a, that's, that's a threat. I don't believe that they'll actually uh, push it forward. I think at the end that there'll be some compromise. Um, they will probably have maybe a first reading of it, or they'll push something along the lines forward just to show intent. 
But the bottom line with both Ben Gvir's threat and the ultra-Orthodox is that all of these parties don't really have too many other options. That's less true with the ultra-Orthodox, but certainly with Itamar Ben Gvir, uh, he doesn't really have any other options, and he certainly won't be seen uh, so well by his potential supporters if he brings down what's called a right-wing government. So at the moment, there's a lot of talk, there's, a, there's going to be, and there are a lot of threats, uh, but at the moment, they will not be fulfilled because uh, everyone in the government really wants to see this government continue. They're certainly not happy about it. They see the polls. According to the polls, this government would, if there were elections tomorrow, this government would be uh, put back into the minority. I think they would only get 56 seats, which will be a drop of eight seats from their current uh, tally. So certainly everyone is feeling the heat uh, from their different uh, constituencies. And uh, that is something that they all have to deal with. And that gives Netanyahu a big headache because while on the one hand, he certainly wants to keep this government uh, together, that's his main aim, he also has to make sure that all these fires are put out. He has to give something to Itamar Ben-Gvir to bring him back into the government, bring him back to the Knesset, bring his party back to the Knesset so they can start voting on uh, laws, especially to do with the budget. He also has to make sure that they give the ultra-Orthodox something uh, ahead of the budget vote because they want to keep them in line and they want to keep their constituency and they want to keep especially their rabbis uh, uh, happy, um, you know, ahead of a very, very difficult um, period in, in, in the Knesset. Finally, before we go to questions, there also came out tonight that uh, Yoav Gallant, the defence minister, the one who was fired and then non-fired, sort of, uh, by Netanyahu in recent weeks, was invited to the US twice and was twice denied by Netanyahu. Netanyahu wants to be the first person or the first minister, although he won't be the first uh, minister from the government, uh, but the first minister to, uh, to go to the US. And uh, again, this is according to media reports, um, until he gets that invitation from President Biden, he's not going to allow other ministers, but there is a concern that someone like Yoav Gallup, the defense minister, needs to go to the US, needs to be in direct consultations about issues as involving Israel's security, not least at the top of the agenda, Iran. Uh, but the fact is that, again, according to media reports, which uh, seem reasonable, uh, Yoav Gallant has been instructed not uh, to travel to the US. Finally, uh, I touched on it a little bit earlier, we saw the president of Iran, Raisi, uh, in Syria, the first uh, presidential visit for many, many years. I think the last one was Ahmadinejad in Syria. It was a show of uh, strength. It was a show of cooperation. Syria, as we've seen recently, has be, is being brought back a little bit into the region uh, for the first time since its civil war. As, as we know, a lot of the Sunni moderate nations certainly shunned uh, Assad uh, and Syria uh, as a whole in the last uh, few years, but we've seen that that uh, sort of firewall has been broken a little bit, um, but we know that Iran is Syria's you know, closest ally, uh, possibly, well not possibly, is the patron, and we're seeing a lot of agreements being signed, but behind the scenes it's a show of strength, Iran is trying to show that they have a united front against Israel. They have Hezbollah in the north, which 
You know, uh, we saw rockets come from, not necessarily Hezbollah, but certainly no rockets come from the south of Lebanon without Hezbollah's know-how and assent. We're seeing rockets come from Islamic Jihad, which is a direct uh, a client organization of Iran. We're seeing Hamas, which obviously have their own ties to Iran. And we're seeing still regular attacks uh, within Judea and Samaria. So this united front, as Iran likes to call it, is certainly a worry for Israel's security chiefs um, because they do feel that there's a certain amount of um, uh, weakness uh, shown around the region and Iran smells weakness, whether there is or not, that's up to debate, but there's certainly something which the Iranians are feeling, uh, its clients uh, in, amongst the terrorist organizations and Syria are feeling, and they're feeling more emboldened as we saw uh, over the last day. So that's certainly something to worry Israel security chiefs. Um, and the question is, what does Netanyahu do uh, now and, and the government do? Because not only on the security front, but also domestically, <clears throat> uh, Netanyahu is being pushed for a much stronger response. It does seem that this particular round with Hamas and Islamic Jihad is over for now. But as we've seen, it won't take much. And we know within a couple of weeks, um, there is the Jerusalem a flag march, which happens every year on Jerusalem Day, where thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even more, uh, Israelis, uh, mostly youngsters, march or, you know, walk through um, Jerusalem, waving flags, celebrating the reunification of Jerusalem. But it has been um, quite a boiling point in previous years. We actually saw in reaction a couple of years ago, uh, rockets being fired on Jerusalem as a result. So there's a lot on Netanyahu and the government's plate uh, coming up, a lot of concerns, a lot of challenges, and we'll have to keep you abreast on, on how he deals with them. And I'm happy to uh, have any questions on these or any other issues. Thank you so much. So the first question we have is from Reuven Hawk, going back to your, your first uh, points there. Was there a change in Israeli policy by allowing the death of the Islamic Jihad's hunger striker? Uh, in the past, wouldn't someone on a hunger strike be force-fed if necessary to prevent their death? I don't know the exact uh, details. There has been uh, instances where, yes, they were force-fed, force and I think the Supreme Court even allowed a certain type of force-feeding. I'm not sure what happened in this particular circumstance, I, I have to say, um, but... You know, he was on a hunger strike for, I think it was 86 days. So it's clear he was at least on liquids or something. Um, but I'm not sure exactly what the process was. And if they, there, there was talk that, you know, he was uh, in danger of losing his life. Um, so it did seem that it wasn't the greater shock to either side that he eventually did die from his hunger strike. Um, but I'm not quite sure, I have to say what uh, the Israeli authorities were doing, if they were doing anything to prolong his life. Thank you. So an anonymous attendee asks, is your sense that this government is stable or that it might be folding soon due to all the party demands that are going unmet? If I'm allowed, I would actually take the middle position. Um, it's not stable necessarily, but as I said earlier, it's not going to fall imminently. Uh, there is no interest, I would say, from any party, uh, first of all, because of the polls. Uh, you know, you don't go to elections when you are you know, going to be voted out. If they came from a point of strength, maybe it'd be worth going for snap elections uh, to increase your power. But uh, 
there's a risk in that, obviously, especially after you know only a few months in power. Um, but that's clearly not the case at the moment. Um, that would be a great challenge um, because they they could especially are sinking in the polls quite rapidly, uh, and each of these developments is certainly hurting them and you can feel it inside the Likud. There's a lot of uh, criticism. We saw Danny Danon. Danny Danon is, is, is an obvious candidate um, to criticize the government because he's the only one senior figure, I would say, who didn't get anything prominent, not a ministry, not a chairman of a, of a Knesset committee. So he feels quite uh, free and open uh, to criticize the government. And he did. He took a very um, strong and hawkish position um, but he, while, while he is free to say what he wants, he does express what many other Likud members of Knesset and ministers even are thinking and even saying behind closed doors. Uh, they are worried about what they see in the polls. They are worried about the response, um, <clears throat> the, what they would classify as a weak uh, response by this government. Um, the only ones who may have something to gain is the ultra-Orthodox who can, and we've seen have, sat in many different governments. But at the moment, they've been promised a lot more by Netanyahu uh, to sit in this government. So at the moment, and they, they will stay there. And I, and I don't see them leaving at any point uh, soon. But if they really, you know, if, if their backs are put up against the wall and they really see that they're not getting anywhere, despite the many, many gains uh, and successes, achievements that they got in the coalition negotiations, if they feel this is just talk and it's just words on paper, then at some point, not now, but at some point, they may have to make alternative um, uh, considerations, but that, that's not imminent at all. Thank you. Riven Hawk again asked, to what do you attribute Benny Gantz's rise in the polls, his relative uh, compromising and moderate stand regarding judicial reform? And an anonymous attendee follows up with, what parties would Gantz ally with uh, if it came to that? And does he have enough for a majority? What was the last uh, sentence? What parties would Gantz ally with and does he have oh, enough for a majority? <clears throat> well, first of all, there's still that elephant in the room that could Benny Gantz at some point join this government, perhaps if uh, Smotrich or, and or Ben Gvir, um, you know, were, were to leave. Uh, Benny Gantz was quite unequivocal on the media today saying, I will not join this government. And certainly he would really have very little to gain because he really is, you know, moving up the polls. Yes, I would say mostly because he's become the most moderate person on the judicial reform. He hasn't taken either extreme position or the could and the uh, National Religious Party and the ultra-Orthodox on one side. And Yale Lapid has been very much, you know, no compromises. I'm not prepared even, you know, to talk as much. Benny Gantz has, has been characterized as that, you know, what they like to say in Israeli politics as the responsible adult. And I think it's that position, that moderate position, that middle of the road position, which is gaining him a lot of plaudits certainly as a former chief of staff and former uh, minister of defense. Um, he's been doing the rounds of the media, uh, basically saying that the response is weak because the government is weak and they're acting like a, uh, you know, a kindergarten, et cetera, et cetera. So certainly as someone with his defense credentials, and don't forget Israelis have very short memories, they won't remember what happened with the last government, but they will be disappointed uh, in this government, again, many Israelis, I'm not saying most or all, uh, many Israelis 
uh, and someone with his defense credentials will certainly loom large. Um, and I think a combination of that is why uh, Benny Gantz is moving up in the polls. Thank you so much. Uh, Murdad Konsari asked, did the high profile visit to Israel by the former crown prince of Iran, Riza Pahlavi, uh, to uh, Israel a few weeks ago, help Netanyahu to highlight his platform concerning Iran and somehow hit back at Iranian inspired attacks, as well as diverting attention away from his other internal problems? I mean, not really. Um, it was a nice visit. Um, you know, it got a bit of play in the Israeli media. Uh, certainly he was, you know, it was an interesting uh, sort of sideshow. Um, and it's the first visit by a prominent member of the Pavlavi family, the former uh, Shah's family of Iran. Um, but it, it wasn't really a, a great distraction for Israelis. At, at the moment, Israelis are, I mean, the last 24 hours or so, they've been worried about um, uh, defense issues. But before that, it was, you know, it's it's not just judicial reform. It's also the, um, the cost of living has gone up exponentially. I mean, there isn't a single day where gas doesn't go up or milk products go up or the cost of bread goes up. Now, a lot of this can obviously uh, be attributed to trends, global trends, and you know uh, the situation with uh, with Russia and Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's not what the average Israeli cares about. They care about the fact that you know their wallets are getting thinner, their bank accounts are getting smaller or more in the red, and they'll blame their government. You know, they, this is a government which sat in the opposition only a number of months ago and basically slammed every time anything went up. That's the role of an opposition. And that's what the opposition now are doing with the current government. But at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're going to blame the ones in power. And the moment the Likud and the government's messaging on all of these issues is just not really hitting home. They're trying to basically deflect and distract by blaming the previous government. And, you know, today we had Yisrael Katz, a prominent member of the cabinet, who blamed the lack of Israel's response on Mansour Abbas. Now, that is not what the average Likud member wants to be hearing, uh, especially if you live in the South and you were forced into a shelter over the last 24 hours repeatedly uh, to blame uh, to blame Mansour Abbas. But these are the talking points. These are the people who are being sent out to defend the government's uh, position. So, uh, you know, the, the, the people are very much focused on what's going on at the moment. So. The, the visit, uh, the previous visit of an Iranian member, the uh, member of the senior member of the Iranian royal family, was was a nice side show. It was a nice distraction for about five minutes, but the average Israeli moved on very very quickly. Thank you so much, uh, David Levine. Asked, does the apparent passivity of the current government to rockets from Gaza have implications for Israel's tough stand against Iran? Absolutely. Um, the Iranians are looking very carefully at this. And again, a, a point I've made many, many times, if you look at Israel's challenges, foes, enemies, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's Iran, whether it's the Revolutionary Guards, um, and you know what's coming out of even Iraq uh, are being brought into the equation, Hamas and certainly Islamic Jihad are the weakest of Israel's enemies. And the fact that Israel, with all its might, with all its budget that it spends on defense and security and the IDF, um, the fact that it doesn't decide when the, when the conflagration starts, when it finishes, how much, 
and the weak, what's perceived as a weak response, is certainly just going to embolden the Iranians. And the fact that, as I said, very, very senior level, the president of Iran was in Syria uh, only a day after Israel again, once again uh, bombed it shows that they are feeling uh, pretty strong. They are feeling pretty tough. And the message to uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad will be, you know, continue as, as you can, because it's clear the Israelis are not responding in the way they are. So this narrative, which is going around our enemies, that Israel significantly weakened because of the disunity within Israel, is something which uh, really is uh, being believed by our enemies in the region. Um, and as I said, this particular round and Israel's response will not uh, seek to deny that. Absolutely. Uh, Barack Korkmaz asks, do you think if there was a post-Biden U.S., there is a chance for U.S. acceptance of Netanyahu or does the Netan or and does the Netanyahu uh, Biden showdown threaten Israeli security? Um, well, I think there's still pretty good ties at all levels. And when it comes to Israel's security, you know, we, we have seen, well, while Israeli leaders haven't necessarily been, especially from the Likud, haven't been going to uh, the U.S., many uh, U.S. senior officials have been coming to Israel. We saw Speaker McCarthy here in Israel last week, and we, we've had the Defense Minister and, and Defense Secretary, I should say, and others. Um, so there are very close consultations, and I think behind the scenes, the relations remain good, but it's clear that President Biden does not want to give Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, the images that he wants of being greeted and warmly received in uh, the Oval Office in the White House, um, you know, the, the message has been put out as long as judicial reform is on the table and it is not agreed to uh, across the board, uh, that invite will not be not be given. Um, so, it remain, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with these negotiations that continue at the president's house. We'll see what's uh, going to happen in the weeks or months ahead on judicial reform. One thing seems to be certain, and I would say that there's a certain truth to it, that um, because of the budget, judicial reform has been taken off the table from the legislative agenda. We know that there are certain laws that can be passed within a day. They've reached the point where they just need a final vote, but I believe that they will not get the green light from Netanyahu uh, because he will be laser focused on the budget because, as I said, Everything else can be put aside, but the budget has, uh, you know, a clock ticking. And if it does not pass by the end of May, uh, then simply this government will no longer exist. So that really is where Netanyahu's laser focus. And as a result of that, um, judicial reform is put on the back burner. The opponents of judicial reform are not putting it on the back burner. And we're going to see another day tomorrow of mass demonstrations stopping uh, cars on on the highway and you know all the other and maybe more trips uh, up the opposition sleeve. Their their belief is while you know it has they, you know Netanyahu and the government has pressed pause. They want to keep up uh, the pressure because they believe, to a certain extent, with with some justification, that it was their pressure that led to this pause in judicial reform. So they certainly won't want to let up on it. And the fact that they've been demonstrating what is it fourteen straight weeks now. They won't want to take uh, a pause and they'll want to make sure that their supporters continue to take to the streets and continue to pressure Netanyahu.
Thank you so much. And I'm sure you'll be updating us on the budget in the coming weeks. All right. So we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you for taking time to update us again this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Colin May discussing how the Islamophobia accusation damaged me. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.